0: Chapter Eleven of Afloat on the Ohio, Unhistorical Pilgrimage of a Thousand Miles in a Skiff, from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Afloat on the Ohio. By Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter eleven Battle of Point Pleasant. The story of Gallipolis. Rosebud. Huntingdon. The genesis of a houseboater. Near Glenwood, West Virginia, Thursday, May seventeenth. By eight o'clock this morning we were in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, at the mouth of the great Kanawha River. 263 miles Sailoron was here the 18th of august 1749 and on the east bank of the river the site of the present village buried at the foot of an elm one of his leaden plates asserting the claim of France to the Ohio basin ninety-seven years later a boy unearthed this interesting but futile proclamation and it rests today in the Museum of the Virginia Historical Society. The great Kanawha Valley long had a romantic interest for Englishmen concerned in western lands. It was in the grant to the old Ohio Company, but that corporation, handicapped in many ways, was practically dead by the time of Lord Dunmore's War. It had many rivals, more or less ephemeral, among them the scheme of George Mercer, 1773, to have the territory between the Alleghanies and the Ohio, the West Virginia of today, erected into the province of Vandalia, with himself as governor, and his capital at the mouth of the great Kanawha. Washington owned a 10,000-acre tract on both sides of the river commencing a short distance above the mouth, which he surveyed in person in October, seventeen seventy, and in seventeen seventy three we find him advertising to sell or lease it. Among the inducements he offered was, "The scheme for establishing a new government on the Ohio," and the contiguity of his lands to the seat of government. Which is more than probable will be fixed at the mouth of the Great Kanawha end quote. had not the Revolution broken out and nipped this and many other budding plan for western colonization, there is little doubt that what we call West Virginia would have been established as a state a century earlier than it was. Footnote, Washington was much interested in a plan to connect by a canal the James and Great Kanawha Rivers, separated at their sources by a portage of but a few miles in length. The distance from Point Pleasant to Richmond is 485 miles. In 1785, Virginia incorporated the James River Company, of which Washington was the first president. The project hung fire because of quote, "party spirit and sectional jealousies" unquote, until 1832 when a new company was incorporated under which the james was improved 1836 to 53 but the kanawha was untouched in 1874 united states engineers presented a plan calling for an expenditure of 60 millions but there the matter rests. The Kanawha is navigable by large steamers for sixty miles up to the falls at Charleston and beyond almost to its source by light craft. A few days ago we were at Mingo Bottom, where lived Chief Logan, whose family were treacherously slaughtered by border ruffians. 1774. The Mingoes ablaze with the fire of vengeance carried the war-pipe through the neighboring villages runners were sent in every direction to rouse the tribes tomahawks were unearthed war-posts were planted messages of defiance sent to the virginians and in a few days lord dunmore's war was in full swing from cumberland gap to fort pitt from the alleghanies to the wabash His lordship, then governor of Virginia, was full of energy, and proved himself a competent military manager. The settlers were organized, the rude log forts were garrisoned, forays were made against the Indian villages as far away as Muskingum, and an army of nearly three thousand backwoodsmen, armed with smoothbores and clad in fringed buckskin hunting shirts, was put in the field one division of this army eleven hundred strong under general andrew lewis descended the great kanawha river and on point pleasant met cornstalk a famous shawnee chief who while at first peaceful had by the logan tragedy been made a fierce enemy of the whites and was now the leader of a thousand picked warriors GATHERED FROM ALL PARTS OF THE NORTHWEST. ON THE 10TH OF OCTOBER, FROM DAWN UNTIL DUSK, WAS HERE WAGED IN A GLOOMY FOREST ONE OF THE MOST BLOODY AND STUBBORN HAND-TO-HAND BATTLES EVER FOUGHT BETWEEN INDIANS AND WHITES, ESPECIALLY NOTABLE, TOO, BECAUSE FOR THE FIRST TIME THE RIVALS WERE ABOUT EQUAL IN NUMBER. The combatants stood behind trees, in Indian fashion, and it is hard to say who displayed the best generalship, Cornstalk or Lewis. Footnote. Hall, in Romance of Western History, 1820, says that when Washington was tendered command of the Revolutionary Army, he replied that it should rather be given to General Andrew Lewis of whose military abilities he had a high opinion. Lewis was a captain in the Little Meadows Affair, 1752, and a companion of Washington in Braddock's Defeat, 1755. When the pall of night covered the hideous contest, the whites had lost one-fifth of their number while the savages had sustained but half as many casualties. Cornstalk's followers had had enough, however, and withdrew before daylight, leaving the field to the Americans. A few days later, General Lewis joined Lord Dunmore, who headed the other wing of the army, which had proceeded by the way of Forts Pitt and Gower, on the pickaway plains in ohio and there a treaty was made with the indians who assented to every proposition made them they surrendered all claim to land south of the ohio river returned their white prisoners and stolen horses and gave hostages or future good behavior here at point pleasant a year later fort randolph was built and garrisoned by a hundred men for despite the treaty the indians were still troublesome for a long time pittsburg redstone and randolph were the only garrisoned forts on the frontier the point pleasant of today is a dull sleepy town of twenty five hundred inhabitants with that unkempt air and preponderance of lounging negroes so common to small southern communities The bottom is rolling, fringed with large hills, and on the Ohio side drops suddenly for fifty feet to a shelving beach of gravel and clay. Crooked Creek, in whose narrow winding valley some of the severest fighting was had, empties into the Kanawha a half-mile up the stream at the back of the town. It was painful to meet several men of intelligence who had long been engaged in trade here, to whom the battle of Point Pleasant was a shadowy event, whose date they could not fix, nor whose importance understand. It seemed to be little more a part of their lives than an obscure contest between Matabeles and whites in far-off Africa. It is time that our Western and Southern folk were awakened to an appreciation of the fact that they have a history at their doors quite as significant in the annals of civilization as that which induces pilgrimages to Ticonderoga and Bunker Hill. Four miles below, Pilgrim was beached for a time at Gallipolis, Ohio two hundred and sixty seven miles which has a story all its own the district belonged a century ago to the scioto company an offshoot of the marietta enterprise joel barlow the poet of the revolution was sent to paris may 1788 as agent for the sale of lands as the result of his personal popularity there and his flaming immigration circulars and maps, he disposed of a hundred thousand acres, to settle on which six hundred French immigrants sailed for America in February 1790. They were peculiarly unsuited for colonization, even under the most favorable conditions, being, in the main, physicians, jewelers, and other artisans, a few mechanics and nobleman servants, while many were without trade or profession. Upon arrival in Alexandria, Virginia, they found that their deeds were valueless, the land never having been paid for by the Scioto speculators. Moreover, the tract was filled with hostile Indians. However, five hundred of them pushed on to the region by way of redstone and reached here by flatboat in a destitute condition the marietta neighbors were as kind as circumstances would allow and cabins were built for them on what is now the public square of gallipolis but they were ignorant of the first principles of forestry or gardening the initial winter was exceptionally severe indian forays sapped the life of the colony Yellow fever decimated the survivors, and altogether the little settlement suffered a series of disasters, almost unparalleled in the story of American colonization. Although finally reimbursed by Congress with a special land grant, the immigrants gradually died off until now, so at least we were assured, but three families of descendants of the original Gauls are now living here. It was the American element, aided by sturdy Germans, who in time took hold of the decayed French settlement and built up the prosperous little town of 6,000 inhabitants which we find today. It is a conservative town, with little perceptible increase in population, but there are many fine brick blocks the stores have large stocks attractively displayed and there is in general a comfortable tone about the place which pleases a stranger the public square where the first gauls had their little fortified town appears to occupy the space of three or four city blocks There is the customary bandstand in the centre and seats plentifully provided along the gravelled walks which divide neat plots of grass. Over the riverward entrance to the square is an arch of gas pipe perforated for illumination and bearing the dates seventeen ninety to eighteen ninety, a relic this of the centennial which Gallipolis celebrated. In the last named year. It was with some difficulty that we found a camping place this evening. For several miles the approaches were nearly knee deep in mud for a dozen feet back from the water's edge, or else the banks were too steep, or the farmers had cultivated so closely to the brink as to leave us no room for the tent. In one gruesome spot on the Ohio bank, where a projecting log fortunately served as a pier, the doctor landed for a prospecting tour, while I ascended a zigzag path through steep and rugged land to a nest of squalid cabins perched by a shabby hillside road. A vicious dog came down to meet me halfway, and might have succeeded in carrying off a portion of my clothing had not his owner whistled him back. A queer, dingy human wasp-nest, this dirty little shanty hamlet of rosebud. Pigs and children wallowed in comradeship, and as every cabin on the precipitous slope necessarily has a basement, This is used as the common barn for chickens, goats, pigs, and cow. It was pleasant to find that there was no sweet milk to be had in Rosebud, for it is kept in open pans in these fetid rooms, and soon sours, and the cows had not yet come down from the hills. Water too, was at a premium. There was none to be had, save what had fallen from the clouds, and been stored in a foul cistern which seemed common property. I drew a pailful of it, not to displease the disheveled group which surrounded me, full of questions, but on the first turning in the lane emptied the vessel upon the back of a pig which was darting by with murderous squeal. The long twilight was well-nigh spent when, on the Ohio side, a mile or two above Glenwood, West Virginia, 287 miles, we came upon a wide-level beach of gravel, below a sloping, willowed terrace, above which sharply rose the second bottom. Ascending an angling-farm roadway, while the others pitched camp, I walked over the undulating bottom. "'to the nearest of a group of small, neat farmhouses, "'and applied for milk. "'While a buxom maid went out and milked a jersey "'that had chanced to come home ahead of her fellows, "'I sat on the rear porch gossiping with the farm wife, "'a Pennsylvania Dutch, dame of ample proportions, "'attired in light-blue calico, "'and with huge spectacles over her Broad flat nose. She and her man own a hundred and fifty acres on the bottom with three cows and other stock in proportion and sell butter to those neighbors who have no cows and to houseboat people. As for these latter, though they were her customers, she had none too good an opinion of them. They pretended to fish but in reality only picked up a living from the farmers. Nevertheless, she did know of some weakly, delicate people who had taken to boat life for economy's sake, and because an invalid could at least fish, and his family help him at it. Near Huntington, West Virginia, Friday, May 18th Backed by ravine-grooved hills, and edged at the waterside with great picturesque boulders, planed and polished by the ever-rushing river, the little bottom farms along our path to-day are pretty bits. But the houses are the reverse of this, having much the aspect of slave cabins of the olden time. Small one-story log-and-frame shanties, roof and gables shingled with shakes and little vegetable gardens enclosed by palings the majority of these small farmers whose tracts seldom exceed a hundred acres rent their land rather than own it the plan seems to be half and half as to crops with a rental fee for house and pasturage one man having a hundred and twenty acres "'told me he paid $3 a month for his house "'and for pasturage a dollar a month per head. "'We were in several of the small towns today, "'at Millersport, Ohio, 293 miles, "'while W and the doctor were up town, "'The boy and I remained at the wharf boat "'to talk with the owner. "'The wharf boat is a conspicuous object "'at every landing of importance.' being a covered barge used as a storehouse for coming-and-going steamboat freight. It is a private enterprise, for public convenience, with certain monopolistic privileges at the incorporated towns. This Millersport boat costs $1,200. The proprietor charges 20% of each freight bill for handling and storing goods, a fee of twenty-five cents for each steamer that lands, and certain special fees for livestock. Athalia, Haskellville, and Guyandotte were other representative towns. Stave making appears to be the chief industry, and as timber is getting scarce, the communities show signs of decay. WE HAD BEEN TOLD ABOVE THAT HUNTINGTON, WEST VIRGINIA, 306 MILES, WAS A RIGHT SMART CHUNK OF A TOWN. AND IT IS. THERE ARE 16,000 PEOPLE HERE, IN A FINELY BUILT CITY SPREAD OVER A BROAD FLAT plain. BRICK AND STONE BUSINESS BUILDINGS ABOUND. THE BROAD STREETS ARE PAVED WITH BRICK, AND AN ELECTRIC CAR LINE RUNS OUT ALONG THE BOTTOM through the suburb of Cerrado, West Virginia, to Catlitzburg, Kentucky, nine miles away. Huntington is the center of a large group of riverside towns, supported by iron-making and other industries, Guyandot and Cerrado in West Virginia, Catlitzburg, just over the border in Kentucky, and Proctorville, Broderickville, Frampton, Burlington, and South Point on the opposite shore. We are camping tonight in the dense willow grove which lines the West Virginia beach from Huntington to the Big Sandy. Above us on the wide terrace are fields and orchards, beyond which we occasionally hear the gong of electric cars. A public path runs by the tent, leading from the lower settlements into Huntington. Among our visitors have been two houseboatmen, whose craft is moored a quarter of a mile below. One of them is tall, thick-set, forty, with a round, florid face, and huge mustaches. Evidently a jolly fellow at his best, despite a certain dubious, piratical air. A jaunty, narrow-brimmed straw hat is perched over one ear to add to the general effect, and between his teeth a corn-cob pipe. His younger companion is medium-sized, slim, and loose-jointed, with a baggy gait, his cap thrown over his head with the visor in the rear, a rustic clown not yet outgrown his freckles. But three weeks from the parental farm in Putnam County, Kentucky, the world is as yet a romance to him. The fellow is interesting, because in him can be seen the genesis of a considerable element of the houseboat fraternity. I wonder how long it will be before his partner has him broken in as a river pirate of the first water. End of chapter eleven. Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, U.S.A.